Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here on West Coast Live is a gentleman who wrote a book that uh, captivated me by the beauty of its language and the, uh, the power of its imagination. It was the story of uh, that fluctuated between the present and the past, between New Orleans and New York, between a secret past, an obvious presence, uh, a convent, and an old rundown home. The book was called Madeline's Ghost. He has a new novel out called The Pirate's Daughter, and it involves gamblers, beautiful copper-haired women, pirates, laptop computers, strange African countries, torture, and the tarot. Will you please welcome the author of The Pirate's Daughter, Robert Girardi, to West Coast Live. I saw that it was hat day, by the way. I liked Rigo's hat, so I thought I'd, you know. Rigo's, Rigo's hat? Yeah. What, what does your hat say on the, on the patch? It's a, it's a red baseball cap that says... Uh, Alvis, yeah. Alvis. You're Alvis? Uh, no, no. You're not Al- Alvis. Im- <laughs> you're an Alvis impersonator, I can tell. The, uh, uh, what, uh, your, your books are about the sort of the slow unveiling of, of, of mystery. I mean, it's more than just a peeling away of, of, a, of an onion. It's, it's like going through drawers of the, of the past, drawers of memory, and opening certain drawers and, and, and trying to make sense of the contents. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I'm really interested in history. Uh, it was one of my early loves. My, my first desire, actually, was to become an archaeologist, and then my father said, you'll never get a job as an archaeologist, so I chose writing. <laughs> but, uh, what, what was your father's job? He was a spy. He was a spy, and your mother? She was a, a, a spy and a, and a, a bad cook. <laughs> <laughs> so you, both your parents were spies. You're interested in history and archaeology. There's something about things being dug up and also things being hidden. How forthright was your father about him being a, about him being a spy? Well, I mean, he worked for the CIA for about 30 years, um, and I didn't know until I was 19, so he wasn't really very forthright about it. But uh, uh, we were told that he worked, he was a foreign service, you know, diplomat, and uh, I wondered about that Aston Martin in the driveway with the machine guns, but I, I didn't know. I thought everyone had, you know, those. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, in uh, Athens and... Uh, Paris and uh, Springfield, Virginia. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> and, and during this time, you assume that you're, you're... And what did your mother say that she did? Well, I mean, my mother largely stayed home. I mean, we're, she had kids in the house, and, I mean, she occasionally worked as a secretary, you know, for the agency. Or, excuse me, an administrative assistant. <laughs> now, as, a, uh, as somebody who didn't learn until you were 19 what it was your father did for a living, did you feel betrayed, relieved, uh, excited? Well, you know, certain things made sense. Um, uh, just kind of the attitude in the house. Uh, and also, I remember certain incidents. We were in France during the Paris peace talks, and these dudes in trench coats came out and went on the roof with these listening devices. My mom told me they were fixing holes in the roof. <laughs> I believed it. You know, I was like eight years old. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> they, were listen- they were listening for leaks of one kind or another. They were listening to the North Vietnamese, you know, doing something. Huh. Yeah. So, and how does this then, in, in, because your, your writing then deals with secrets and, and mysteries and privacy. 
Right. Well, I I sort of think that being a writer is one of the most public professions you know you can have. Uh, I mean, you take your own memories and you steal the memories of all your friends, and you uh, put them in a book, and it's public property. So I guess I kind of grew up with this uh, abhorrence for secrets and things like that. You know, you tend to be just the opposite of what your parents, you know, were. I think that's the way it goes, isn't it? But but you also are creating worlds out of your own imagination. I mean, it's like. You know, these aren't, uh, you know, they're, they're things going in here that you're making up. Like, they're cover stories. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm not really a writer. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, uh, growing up overseas in, in uh, you know, Europe, I didn't have a lot of English-speaking friends, and so I tended to be alone a lot. <laughs> uh, now, and, uh, you know, and you tend just to make up your own, you know, worlds and with your toys and, you know, your... Etc. So I think that probably had something to do with it. Yeah. There's a, there's a map on the cover of this book here. Is it kind of like inspired by Treasure Island? Actually, that's the Azores. <laughs> that, uh, that yeah, that's that's the Azores. Sorry. <laughs> so not inspired by Robert Louis Stevenson. Then. Okay. All right. No, but it's a great it's a great cover. I I didn't have anything to do with it, but it's a great cover. So your book begins. Coming home from work one Monday evening in August, Wilson Lander found two tarot cards face up on a side street of the out of the way neighborhood where he lived. They were the Emperor and the Page of Wands. In the peculiar light of that hour, the cards seemed to glow with hidden meaning, two bright rectangles against the dull brick pavement. I mean, from that you begin uh, an adventure. Uh, your, your character is alternately drawn to finding out what may be in store from him and afraid of it. Yes, that's true. Yeah, he, um, he's sort of stuck in this kind of uh, dull life, but very safe. And uh, he is afflicted by kind of a psychological tick, which he calls the dread, and it's the feeling that something bad is always about to happen next. And because of that, he has lived very safely, but one day, after he finds the tarot cards, he decides to throw everything over for, uh, well. well. All right, let's, uh, let's have you, uh, if I could have you read in your voice, uh, description, he stops into a shop in order to try to get this interpreted in some way, what these, these cards mean. Yeah, he, uh, he goes to sort of an occult store, and he, he doesn't really believe in any of this, but he's found these tarot cards, and because he's afflicted by this dread, he, he thinks that the tarot cards mean something. So <clears throat> he, um, he steps into the shop. The store formed a long, triangular cave that narrowed to a point at the back. A fat orange cat eyed Wilson from a pink pillow near the door as he stepped inside. On one wall hung cast iron cauldrons of different sizes, pewter charms and stapled baggies, bundles of dried roots. Against the other wall, shelves of books with titles like Rune Casting Made Easy, Orgasming with the Goddess, Witchcraft and Lesbianism, Sorcery and 101 Easy Lessons. At the, corner, at the counter in the middle, a young woman sat balanced on a stool painting her toenails. Wilson approached cautiously. He was the only customer. A loud, sonorous chanting vibrated from the sound system. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was wondering if I could ask you a favor, Wilson began. The young woman looked up, and Wilson forgot himself. She was very pretty, with sea-green eyes and a tangle of wind-blown coppery hair. Her skin was tanned, except for a raccoon mask of whiteness where sunglasses had been. Her lips were chapped. She wore a pair of white scotton drawstring pants and a hooded sweatshirt that read USS William Eaton over the left breast. She didn't look at all like the kind of person you'd expect to find working in a place like that. She looked like she belonged on the deck of a ship somewhere off the Cap Verde Islands as a fine salt spray washed over the gunnels and the sky went dark with storm. Okay, the young woman said, frowning. Speak. Are you, do you answer questions? Wilson cast a helpless glance around at the love filters and voodoo dolls hanging from the ceiling. 
Jungle Red, the young woman said, screwing the cat back on the bottle of nail polish and waving it in his direction. What do you think? She held up her newly painted toes. Nice, Wilson said. Don't worry, the woman said. I can answer any questions you might have. Wilson took the two tarot cards out of his pocket and laid them on the counter at right angles to each other. I found them like that in the street on my way home. The Emperor, the Page of Wands, she said. Major Arcana, Minor Arcana. I don't believe in any of this stuff, of course, Wilson said, but, but what the hell could mean something, right? The young woman stared up at him for a long moment with her raccoon eyes. Wilson squirmed uncomfortably beneath this scrutiny. His intellect knew a couple of cards found on the street couldn't predict the future, but his dread had other ideas. Okay, I'll need to find out a few things before I can give you an informed opinion, the young woman said, nodding at the cards. Your moon sign, your sun sign, your shoe size, your likes, your dislikes, your favorite color, the exact day, hour, and minute of your birth, whether you have any distinguishing marks in your body, whether you came out of the womb with a call over your face or butt first. <laughs> a call? Yes, it's a thin membrane of embryonic tissue that in a small percentage of births covers the newborn's face when it emerges from the birth canal. A call can mean that the child is marked by fate, that it has been signaled out for good luck or bad luck, but in either case, certain sensitivities are bound to be inherent. A call, uh, I don't know. Ask your mother. She's dead. What about your father? He's dead too, Wilson said. What did he do for a living? Is this relevant? Wilson said. Of course, the young woman said, everything is relevant. Wilson hesitated. Actually, he was a gambler professional? She suddenly looked interested. Her eyes flickered with a secret intelligence. Yes, Wilson said, slightly embarrassed. Was he any good? Wilson shrugged. He made money at it. How much money? Look, are you a gambler too? Wilson shook his head emphatically. Not me. I work in an office. You've never gambled? She seemed disappointed. I've played a few hands of poker. Ever lost? Come to think of it, no. The young woman smiled, and there was something behind the smile that Wilson found uncomfortable and thrilling at once, and there was a knot in his stomach when he looked at her that was not the dread at all. The woman pushed the cards around the glass counter with the tips of her fingers. Her brow wrinkled in concentration. Wilson could almost hear the gears working. Let's get on with this, she said. Can you tell me if you wear boxers or jockeys? <clears throat> boxers, Wilson said before he realized that she was making fun of him. Thanks for your help, he said, and gathered the cards and went quickly out onto the sidewalk. But then he saw the garlic clove and wine bottle floating in the breeze next door, and he felt his stomach knot up again, and he stepped back inside. Do you want to go to lunch? Wilson said from the safe distance of the doorway. If it's someplace close, the young woman said. And the adventure begins. Yes. Robert Girardi reading from The Pirate's Daughter. <laughs> At one point in the, in the book, as, as he's preparing to make a change in his life, he wants to grab up books and take them with him. And Cricket, as the woman is, is, is called, doesn't want to have anything to do with books. She feels they have nothing to do with life. Right. She's a sort of a woman of action, uh, as it were. But it turns out that uh, in her past, books were kind of shoved down her throat. Uh, and so she you know, hates these intellectual things. But uh, she kind of has a, you know, a yen for Wilson, who's very much of an intellectual. So you know, I don't think she really knows what she wants, that Cricket. <laughs> So uh, do you find yourself uh, preferring to be then a, a, a man of books rather than a man of action yourself? Uh, I do a lot of sitting, yeah. Uh, I'm definitely not a man of action. Um, uh, no, I, I, I work uh, right every day uh, in the Library of Congress, and it, it took me about 10 years to train myself to sit in one chair for six to eight hours a day, so I, I do that. So. Why, why the Library of Congress? Uh, it's close to my house. And, so <laughs> I live in D.C., yeah. Uh, you also spent some time in Los Angeles. What did you do when you were there? 
Uh, let's see. Um, I was thrown in jail for trying to cut a boot off my car, but uh, other than that, I, uh, um, I was, a, you know, I just got out, of, got out of school, and it was kind of, you know, my adventure, and I packed up a car, uh, a 1971 Volvo that broke down in the desert, and I ended up in L.A., and uh, I, you know, I tempted. You know, I was a waiter, all that, all that great stuff. And and what uh, your car had been booted because of unpaid parking tickets? Yeah, about two thousand dollars worth of them. Yeah. And somebody saw you uh, trying to remove the boot? Yeah, one of the neighbors, and they called the police. <laughs> That's rude. Ah, well, you know, it's a land of justice here in America. <laughs> but um, I this was in the early '80s, and uh, it was right kind of the height of the LA punk scene. And uh, although I've never really been a punk, um, it was uh, quite a spectacle, and uh, it was uh, one of a very interesting time to be there. What made it interesting for you? Uh, just um, you know, there's a lot going on. There were a lot of you know bands and things like that, and a lot of strange shows to be seen. I remember going into the Mojave Desert with uh, 800 punks and various buses to see this German noise band play power tools while they blew up refrigerators. <laughs> so that was uh, that was a memorable event. Well, that sounds like kind of a, you were watching some action. I mean, you, you were seeking it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I mean, I, uh, I have a great uh, love of spectacle. Uh, if I were a filmmaker, I think I'd have casts of thousands, you know. There's a, uh, there's a lot to do with the sea and, and sailing in this, in this book, and uh, there's a yacht involved out of Santa Barbara called the Compound Interest. What, uh, how, much, how much time do you choose to spend at the sea, if you can? Well, I can't swim, so... Um, no, um, actually, uh, I, I, I do love the sea, um, and uh, I have friends who live in Maine who have sailboats, and I, whenever I can mooch a, a week or two off them, I go up there and sail. I know nothing about it. I'm a passenger. I just sit there, and the sails go up, and my friend says, will you do something? And I say, I have my beer. It's full. I can't. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, well, clearly, the action does go on in your books. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of heroic scenes. It's an adventure... Uh, as an adventure story, this is, uh, is this what you'd like to be doing? Well, uh, if it were uh, available to me, maybe. But uh, Well, I think that uh, it was Flaubert who said that to be radical in your art, you have to be bourgeois in your life. And I think there's a, certain, there's a certain truth to that. I mean, y if you go around and do all this stuff, you know, when are you going to write about it? I mean... Uh... <laughs> and, and if you go around and do it, when are you going to have time to read about it? That's true. <laughs> I mean, I think Kerouac was a case in point. He spent a lot of years running all over the country and the globe, and uh, you know, I, I, don't, I think he wrote maybe two or three good books, and the rest of them were, well, <clears throat> sorry if there's any fans in the audience. The, uh, the guest here is uh, Robert Girardi, and his, uh, his book is published by Delacorte Press. It's called The Pirate's Daughter, and the, uh, the previous novel is called Madeline's Ghost. And both of them, if you uh, want to avoid your current life of action and, and sit down and imbue yourself in and also wonderful historical detail. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. They're, uh, they're quite fun. Thank you very much. Robert Girardi. Thanks a lot. Here on West Coast Live. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.